Thank you for joining us for our final um, sermon of the Advent series that we're doing this morning. Uh, Before I start, I wanted to say this is actually my first time I've got to preach on a Sunday morning. And I'm looking... Oh, wow. Thank you. Uh, We'll see how it goes. Uh, I look around the room and I see all of you and I know who's tuning in at home. And I just want you to know that uh, I look up to so many of you in spiritual wisdom and and your spiritual maturity, and your biblical knowledge. And because of that, I just, I want you to know, I, can, I truly consider this one of the great honors of my life. So thank you. Um, have you ever heard an amazing story? Right? Um, not very often, but you do. Um, I love hearing people's stories, like the funny ones, and the scary ones, and even the confusing ones, because I just feel like stories are a way that we connect with people. And... Um, I wanted to tell you an amazing story this morning. So this is a story from when I was a child. I was eight years old. And um, this is my mom's story, really. So she tells it better than me. But I remember fragments of it since I was young. Um, But we have, or I have an older brother who's a year and a half older. And I have a younger brother who's five years younger. And I have a baby sister. And at the time, my younger brother was three. And his name is John. And one day, we lost John. Okay, we were at home, but we lost him, all right? And we, we live on two and a half acres in Lincoln, um, and we have a three-story house. So there's a lot of different places that John could have been. Um, we called him, and we called him. She, my mom recruited us, and we were all looking around the house. We searched high and low. We looked everywhere we could look for him, and we could not find him. And uh, my mom went downstairs and checked our big oak door that's like 600 pounds or something it's huge and it was cracked and she's like he's not really big enough to open this but it's possible and we can't find him in the house and so one of the things I remember my mom doing was running from our front door through our circle drive through the pine trees towards the street because you you just don't know and Uh, one of our neighbors was outside, and she's like, what's going on? My mom was telling her what we couldn't find John, and um, my neighbor quick and ran to her neighbor's house to make sure John hadn't gotten in the pool or something. And then my mom ran down towards 40th Street, because 40th Street's pretty busy. Uh, She could see all the way down the other side, because it's a big hill. But she ran towards 40th, looked both ways, she couldn't find him. And she thought, okay, I've gone as far as I could go. I've looked every place I could look. I don't know where he is. And she started praying. And she said, God, I'm a sinner. She's like, I am I'm guilty of everything under the sun. And she's like, and I am sorry. And she says, but God, you know all things. And, he, and she's like, and I need to know where my son is right this minute. And then as if you or me were standing here talking, these words appeared in her head, and the words were, he's under his bed asleep. (laughs) My mom was like, okay. (laughs) And so she prayed again, and she said, God, if I go back to the house and he's not there, I'm going to have to call the police. And then I'm going to have to call Rick, my dad. And she said, and God, I don't mind calling the police. So she searched everywhere else that was reasonable one more time because she knew that if she went down to the bed and he wasn't there, then the true horror would have set in. And so she looked everywhere else, couldn't find him. 
And then she looked under the bed, which she's already looked before. All of us had looked there before. And her eyes had to adjust because it was so dark in there. There's a big queen-size bed that he had that was pushed up against the wall and into the corner. So it was real dark. It was real low to the ground kind of a bed. And under the bed, we had these little foam navy cots that we would pull out at nighttime. So if he rolled off the bed, he wouldn't hit the, the wood floor. And he had crawled up underneath the bed and was laying on top of the cots all the way against the wall, dead asleep. And you couldn't see him at glance. You'd have to look and wait and wait, and then you would see him. And he was there. This Christmas, you read the story in Luke 2, and if you were here with us on Christmas Eve, certainly you did. And I want you to read, I want to read a passage from this again. And I want you to hear, and I want you to listen to it carefully, as if you are hearing this story again for the first time. And it's somebody, a story somebody's telling you, and you could just, I want you to try to recognize and maybe even count the amount of amazing things in this story, as if you're hearing it from somebody else. Luke 2, and we're just going to read verses 8 through 18. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left and they had gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see the thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. These shepherds went around telling this story, and people were amazed at this story. The thing about amazing stories that you and I hear today, it has a minimum of one amazing thing in it, right? That's, that's the criteria for an amazing story. Um, the max amount of things that amazing stories have in them nowadays, maybe three or four on a really, really good story. On this story, I counted over a dozen amazing things in this story. I want to I share just a few of them with you because we don't have time to go through all of them. Um, but the first one was that the angel appeared, <laughs> okay, and terrified them. Like if somebody were to tell you a story that they had seen an angel... Um, that would most likely be the most amazing story that you and I have heard in our entire life. Am I correct? Um, how about the fact that the angel actually spoke to them? Okay, that's amazing. So we know even just the sound of an angel voice, the booming, terrifying voice of an angel, or the angel singing, the, the glorious sound of the angel choir singing, that alone would be something. But the fact that he spoke to them implies something. It implies that they have a message from someone and that, that someone is God, okay? Because the angels are his messengers. So do you guys think that God needs angels to send a message? So you could just have the words come up in your head like my mother did, okay? That didn't require an angel. You could have circumstances lead you to understanding something, right? Um, you don't necessarily need an angel. Um, but this was this 
arguably one of the greatest times or events in the history of creation that's happening at this moment to shepherds, okay? This is a ceremonial thing. This is why God sent a a legion of angels to come and sing and to declare his coming, okay? So do you do you know in like every movie you've ever seen about a kingdom where the king's about to come out and then before the king comes out, what happens? The people are up on the wall, lining the walls, and they got these huge trumpets and they play this kingly tune, I don't know the word, tune on their trumpets. They got the, the flags hanging from them and they, they're playing and playing and the people are like, oh, the king's coming. And then the king comes out on the balcony and the people are like, yeah, the king, hail to the king, right? This is that moment, right? The angels are singing, here he comes, right? And there's no trumpets there, but y'all, at the end, when Jesus comes back again, there'll be trumpets, right? Which is pretty cool. So big ceremonial thing that God sends angels to see the shepherds. The The next thing that's amazing about the story to me is that the shepherds received accurate information. Okay? They received accurate information. Why is that important? Um, What's the first thing you would think if somebody came and told you they'd seen an angel? You're crazy, right? (laughs) Probably. I mean, probably you haven't seen an angel. Probably something else is wrong with you. Um, The fact that they went and they found the child proves things. It proves that this happened, that this wasn't a hallucination, that this wasn't a group conspiracy. Because remember, there are multiple shepherds in on this thing, right? If it was just your shepherd buddy, who knew you were also a shepherd, and they told you they seen an angel, you'd be like, no, you didn't, right? Because now there's all these angels that, or shepherds that were spoken to at a time, and they all decided together to go, and then they all found him. Okay? Accurate information. It proves this. People actually listen to the shepherds is amazing. Um, the reason that's amazing is because shepherds were looked down on, not just because they had a lame job, but because likely from 400 years of serving under the Egyptians, the Egyptians were known to be agriculturalists. So um, for them to look at shepherds, they would say, oh, you know, they would look down on them. And time of 400 years, that would, that would take hold into the hearts of the Hebrews, right? Theologians... Uh, say that likely shepherds were on the same status as like a tax collector or a dung sweeper, okay? Um, Not that they were hated because tax collectors stole people's money more or less, but just because the status, they were very low on on the totem pole. So why did the angels appear to the shepherds then? Um, Talk about the worst messengers of all time, right? Uh, This is another reason why the story was amazing to me. Throughout history, God has called upon um, people from humble origins to be part of his great plan. Um, and there's a few reasons why I think God appeared to shepherds. Um, number one, I think it was a foreshadowing of the role that Jesus would take. So Jesus comes to take on the role of good shepherd, right? In John 10, 11, it says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I used to work down in a camp down near the Ozarks. Um, this camp is called Kanakuk. It's uh, a Christian sports camp uh, that went all summer long. And we had the sheep there one year because one year the sheep was involved in this skit that we had going on all week. 
So the kids would come, they'd hear the skit all week, they'd go home, and new kids would come the next week. So the sheep stayed there all summer. It was kind of like the camp sheep, right? And the sheep stayed at uh, the director's house. But by the end of the end of the summer, the director was like, you could see it on his face. He's like, I'm done with this sheep, man. <laughs> he, the, the sheep, like, he had to drag it. Like, this, this sheep was, it was dumb. Like, it, was, it didn't know what was good for it. It was stubborn. It, it, w- it wouldn't go with the flow and do the things it's been doing all summer, even though it was the last week, and it should be used to it by now. Um, and, you know, in this analogy, you and I, we're the sheep, okay? We're the ones that don't know what's best for us, right? Um, it's no wonder shepherds were looked down on because um, it's no wonder the, the least of these would take care of the sheep because the sheep are not worth anyone's time whose time was worth anything. People would probably say things like, I don't want the job of going and taking care of the flock, these half-witted animals. Let, make, make so-and-so do it, right? That's the shepherd. So God not only humbles himself to become a man as baby Jesus, but to take on a persona of a shepherd, not a cool job, God. (laughs) Um, However, a pretty accurate illustration um, of mankind being sheep. Um, Also, there's an obvious example of him laying down his life for us. So I have a question for you. Would you die for a sheep? Would you die for a hundred sheep? Most likely the answer is, no, of course not. I would not die for even a hundred sheep, okay? My life is not worth the lives of a hundred sheep. But do you see what you did there? You have assigned worth to those sheep, right? It wasn't the sheep assigning worth to themselves. It was you deciding that your life was not worth theirs. You weighed the sheep against your own, and it wasn't worth the price. You do not assign your worth. Jesus assigns the worth of the sheep you, which means he decided that your life was more important than his earthly life. Who should the angels have appeared to then, if shepherds aren't important enough? Who was more worthy, more important? Who, who should have the angels come to? Who would have been better messengers? This is actually kind of a dangerous question, um, and the reason that it is is because of reason number two. God despises our smugness and our prejudices and our pride. He despises it. For example, have you ever got dressed in the dark? Maybe it's dark in your room, you don't want to wake your spouse up. Um, You show up for school or work, and at the break you go and you go to the bathroom, and you see yourself under the revealing lights of the restroom mirror, and you think, oh, no, no. Your shirt's inside out, or like your clothes don't match, or you got one navy shoe and one black shoe on. Does this happen to ladies? Like I've I've heard this happens to ladies before. Yeah, the fact that God would herald the birth of Christ to the lowliest of people shows something. It shows that no matter our status, we're all simple and filthy people, and we see this in the revealing light of the divine nature of God. In other words, this is a dangerous question to ask who is a better messenger than shepherds because the priests or the scholars, somebody you think would be better, were no more worthy to witness the angels than the shepherds were. Reason number three, I think, he used shepherds as his messengers was 
He, was, he wants to be heard by those who want to hear, who want to listen. Um, and this is no different than when Jesus shares parables later, right? He says, people who will hear will hear it. Jesus reminds his followers later in Mark 2, he says, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but the unrighteous to repentance. So aren't you glad that God doesn't rank people and play favorites? Aren't you glad he didn't come to save the quote-unquote righteous? Um, Aren't you glad that you don't have to compete for God's favor and his attention and his salvation? Aren't you glad that we have a way back to God, despite our best efforts to push him away? The, The shepherds still had people's attention, not because of who they were or their status was enough, because the story was amazing. It was an amazing story. So Jesus himself had an amazing story from start to finish. And by start, I mean even before he was born in the prophecy. So we're going to look through different aspects of why Jesus' story was important. The prophecy of Christ, the birth of Christ, the death of Christ, and the return of Christ. Okay? Now first, the prophecy of Christ. Perhaps the, the, the right place to start is one of the chief concepts of Scripture, which is the New Covenant. The Hebrews in the Old Testament were to be God's people, basically, by acting like it. Okay? They were to follow moral laws. They were to follow ritual laws. And they were to follow civil laws. In turn, God would bless these people, and they would prosper in plain view of the neighboring pagan nations. Right? And this covenant was made so the Hebrews would represent God's name to the world. The problem was they would be prospering, and they would go through this cycle— They'd be prospering, and then they'd take it for granted, and they'd fall into sin. And then God would punish them. And then they would go through punishment, and they would cry out to God for deliverance. And then God would deliver them, and then God would bless them, and they would prosper again. And it would just go round and around and around. Okay, this was the cycle. And then it takes a turn, because in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, there's like a new plan. Okay, and here's the new plan. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them in the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. And in the New Testament, in Hebrews 12, Jesus is confirmed to be the mediator of the new covenant. So, application question number one. What about the new covenant is an amazing upgrade from the Old Covenant. It's commonly said that the Old Testament law is like a mirror to our soul, right? If we were to look at the law in relation to ourselves, we would see a reflection of how sinful we are. It's showing us our sin like a mirror. So sure, the moral law especially shows us that God uh, that we can, lo- we can love God and love others even today. We can look at that and, and do that today. But God has a new covenant in mind, uh, one that cannot be broken, be- mostly because we can't screw it up. It's because it's not, it's not 
anchored on our own deeds, right? Instead, God writes his new covenant on the hearts of people. Number two, the birth of Christ. In Isaiah seven fourteen, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call his name Emmanuel. And we talked about this at Christmas Eve. Emmanuel means God with us. The virgin birth, the angels appearing, the gender of the baby that's given, the role to be received, on and on. This prophecy is pretty amazing with, uh, as it is, right? Uh, but the reason Jesus coming is even more so, that he decided to pardon our sin as Messiah and to save the world. So Emmanuel means God with us, and there's a director of ministry that was asked to sum up the four Gospels in seven words or less, and he said that God refuses to be God without us. God refuses to be God without us. Now certainly, God could be God without us, although sinful, we were made in the image of God. So we have value because he has given us value. He decides the worth of the sheep. I would suggest to you that not even we can devalue ourselves. Have you ever possessed something that you've detested? So for example, you couldn't get rid of something that you didn't like because you knew it still had value? Have any artists out here? You ever like make something and you spend so much time on it and you love this thing, but it has one little flaw in it and you're like, "Mm, I, I really don't like that I messed up that one part, but as a whole, I love this thing. So I can't get rid of it. Or... Maybe in my case, you give your parents a hamster for Christmas. There's nothing like giving somebody a pet they don't want, okay? They couldn't get rid of the hamster because the hamster, you know, has value, and they're not terrible people, so they had to keep it. You might think this is how God feels about us, but it's really the opposite. God isn't thinking, ugh, I wish I didn't make these people with value because now I can't get rid of them. Okay, he's not thinking that. Instead, he loves us. He fights for us. He became a man and died for us. He refuses to be God without us. Okay? Application number two. What amazing thing has God done to show you that he refuses to be God without you? Okay? So a time that you can look back on as a moment that God pursued you personally, that you knew that you weren't maybe doing a lot on your end, but God was doing a lot on his end to show you that you were important. Number three, the death of Christ. We come to possibly my favorite verses in all of scripture right here. Okay? Luke 19, 35 through 40. They flung their garments on the colt and mounted Jesus on it. And as he went and strewed their garments on the road, when he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the, world, the whole crowd and the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with shouts for all the deeds of power they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the heights. Some of the Pharisees who were in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he answered, if these keep silent, the stones will cry out. The Pharisees told Jesus to rebuke his disciples because these specific words were prophesied words, prophesied for the Messiah only. Okay, If they were using them, towards Jesus, which obviously the Pharisees didn't see Jesus as Messiah, then his disciples were committing blasphemy, okay? But what Jesus says in my part, the the part that's my favorite, the part that I love, is the subtext of what Jesus says to them is, 
I am Messiah. And he says, if those prophesied words aren't said right now by these men, the rocks will cry it out. Okay? Ugh, like goosebump moment. Interestingly, this was in effect literally um, uh, fulfilled on the cross. Uh, when men were spitting at Jesus and scoffing at him and hurling insults at him instead of praising him like it was supposed to be done, and the disciples fell into this deep, like sick pit of their stomach silence because they saw Jesus dying on the cross. Do you remember what happened? The earth quaked, the rocks rent, and they literally cried out. Application number three. Name an amazing moment in your life that God had planned or orchestrated. Most likely you haven't had something prophesied to you, but God sometimes makes a plain to see the puzzle pieces all come together for you. Something happened for you that was clearly planned since the foundation of the world. Um, Number four, the return of Christ. Surely one of the greatest mysteries and exciting moments is still to come. Uh, The rest of the prophecies will be fulfilled. The trumpets will sound. The whole world will bow before Jesus and the new covenant people will go to be with him forever. Revelation 19, 11 through 16 says this. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider was called Faithful and True, whose justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. He dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name was the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth came a sharp sword with which he struck down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe, on his thigh, he had the name written, King of King and Lord of Lords. My wife asked me if I ever got a tattoo, what I would get. And I was like, well, I'd probably get some kind of gibberish name down my thigh that's only known to me, just like Jesus is going to have. That'd be so cool. So when Jesus comes back, we'll have a good icebreaker. (laughs) My heart goes back and forth with this story, the return of Christ. Like, I want to meet Jesus so bad. I want the pain to end. I want the party to start. But then I remember the Lord's heart on this. In 2 Peter 3, 9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I took a little Greek in college. And like me, a lot of people in our class were Christian because why learn ancient Greek, a dead language, if you don't want to know the Bible a little bit better? (laughs) There's not a lot of other reasons to do it. Um... But in the language class, there's a lot of conjugating and speaking it, learning to write it like in any other language class. Um, And the sentences were always kind of about the same topic for some reason. Like the book that we used, they all had the same story that kind of ran throughout the entire textbook. And it was about this farmer picking rocks up out of his field. That was like the whole thing. Okay, so um, we had, for example, like, I would say, like, he, she picks up the rock. We, they drag the rock away. I throw the rock away. Okay, out of the field. Um, And so I always think about uh, these shirts that we made, because we made these shirts with this little farmer on, like the stick farmer that was in the 
the pictures, the, these crude drawings of a farmer. Um, and it, it said in Greek underneath it, um, the rocks are many, but the workers are few, right? So it's kind of a play off of that Bible verse. And I always think about those shirts because there's still work to be done. There's st- God's, God's delaying, tearing on while he's waiting for people to come to repentance. Um, he doesn't want anyone to perish, and he's being patient with us. The Lord delays for the sake of those who will still be saved. So application number four, what amazing way could you see God using you before his return? When something amazing happens to us, we cherish it, right? We relish the opportunity to go around and tell our amazing story. And unfortunately, I feel like I miss opportunities for amazing sometimes. And I'm not really sure why, but I think it's because sometimes I'm not ready on a random Tuesday morning for God to be amazing to me, you know? Um, And I don't, or sometimes I I just don't feel it. And I'm like, I don't want amazing today. Like, I just want to get through today and go to the next day. And sometimes amazing probably requires a shower or something. And, but most of our days are going to be ordinary, and that's okay. Um, there's still work to be done. I, and I, want, I wanted to encourage you with this. Just keep coming back, keep coming to the field, and keep picking up rocks. Just every day, just keep picking up rocks. Um, all the while praying and telling Jesus' story to his valuable sheep being prepared for amazing. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we come to you this morning with mixed emotions. Lord, we want to see you, and we want to be called home. But we also want to see more come to know you first. We want to act like sheep wasting our days away and not doing anything important. But, Lord, we also want to be like farmers, getting work done day by day. God, we thank you for the reminder uh, from the shepherd's story that amazing can come at any moment. God, prepare our hearts to be ready, to be intentional with others, and to be diligent with our kingdom work. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.